Hello and welcome to this Owl Explains Hootenanny, our podcast series where you can wise up on blockchain and Web3 as we talk to the people seeking to build a better internet. Owl Explains is powered by Avalabs, a blockchain software company and participant in the Avalanche ecosystem. My name is Silvia Sanchez, project manager of Owl Explains, and with that, I'll hand it over to today's amazing speakers. Hey everybody, welcome to the Owl Explains Hootenanny. This is going to be a particularly fun hootenanny for me because Tina and Ari are two folks that I really enjoy talking with, and we're going to try to prognosticate and prevaricate and otherwise do any, oh, perambulate. No, we probably won't perambulate uh, since that's a little hard to do while you're sitting talking on a podcast. But uh, uh, Tina, Ari, why don't you introduce yourselves? Uh, I'm Tina Baker-Taylor, and I'm the Vice President of Policy and Regulatory Strategy in EMEA for Circle. Hi, uh, everybody. Ari Redboard. I am the Global Head of Policy for TRM Labs and really excited for the conversation. Lee and Tina are both luminaries and people I admire and respect in this space. So really, really excited for the conversation. And I'm Lee Schneider. I'm the General Counsel at Ava Labs and uh, one of the wise owls behind Owl Explains. We've been having a lot of fun with it over the last year, and we hope you have been too. So, uh, Tina, Ari, and Tina, you'll answer first. What is the key thing that you are focused on right now from a policy slash regulatory standpoint? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, because my focus is on the Europe, Middle East, and Africa, there is a lot going on in the regulatory space in this region right now. So, I think the most um, important is the implementation of MIGA, which will come into full force in July, basically, uh, of next year, 2024. And so firms all over Europe and firms looking to operate in Europe are readying themselves to be compliant with that new legislation, which entails uh, becoming licensed in one of the EU member states. And the the regulation itself covers many different facets of crypto asset business activities. It's the most comprehensive of any of the crypto asset regulatory frameworks that we have seen to date. So there is provisions for stablecoins, for custody, for trading platforms, there's conduct requirements, uh, prudential requirements, etc. So um, it's, it's a heavy lift. It's very positive in that it enables 27 member states to have a similar playing field across the entirety of Europe, and it affords businesses certainty to be able to cross-sell from one country to another. So it will open up a trading block of, again, 27 different countries that will be on um, one regime. So there's clarity there and there's the ability to passport licenses, which I think is really positive. Um, But it is a very comprehensive set of rules, um, which, you know, are not light touch by any means. So that's probably the key development. And then I think um, in the UK, we have seen recent legislation um, evolve into discussion papers from the FCA and the Bank of England on how stable coins will potentially be treated in the UK, which is, from a circle perspective, very promising. Um, And the FCA has also indicated that 
crypto asset regulation more broadly will be forthcoming in a phase two early next year. So uh, progress is being made there from a previous position of kind of hurry up and wait. So um, that that is um, something to look forward to. And then I would say um, in the Middle East, we're seeing a lot of developments in Abu Dhabi and Dubai specifically around continued clarity and um, real opportunities for businesses to obtain licenses um, and operate both onshore in the Middle East um, and export um, many different types of use cases um, out of the Middle East as a hub. So lots going on in EMEA. All right, Ari, if you can follow up, if you can follow up that, I, I'll be impressed. I, I love the, the journey around the world in crypto policy and regulation. And there, there, it is, it's happening absolutely everywhere. And that's kind of what's so cool about it. But for me, uh, for me, I'd say most top of mind is almost always around education. And this is why I kind of so admire and respect um, the way you have made it. I'll explain sort of, you know, education, playful and fun, but also um, meaningful. For me, it's around um, you know anti-money laundering and the conversations that that regulators and policymakers have really almost always had globally in the crypto space, and that is uh, this narrative that that crypto is used or only used for money laundering and, and other types of illicit activity. Um, when the reality is that anti-money laundering is a use case for the technology; it's a it's a feature, not a bug. And what we're seeing is regulators and really law enforcement use blockchain technology, right? The native qualities of public blockchains, transparent, traceable, immutable, to actually mitigate the risk of fraud and financial crime by tracing and tracking uh, the flow of funds on blockchains to build investigations really in ways you never could in the traditional world, to follow hacked funds, um, to, uh, to follow and then ultimately seize funds associated with terrorist financing. Um, and then there's the compliance angle, right? You know, Circle um, and, and many others use TRM uh, for transaction monitoring and wallet screening and to understand who you're sending funds to. That technology doesn't exist in, 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 in the traditional world to the extent that it does in crypto. So it's really sort of that education piece explaining to policymakers who are just focused on the illicit finance risks and not as focused as understanding on how the technology can be used to mitigate those risks. And we're having those really those conversations uh, everywhere, to, I think to differing degrees of, of success, but I think it's just so important to understand that the technology enables so much more in anti-money laundering than we really ever had before. I, I think both of those things are, are definitely things that everybody should be paying attention to. I know that I am. I'll add a third thing, and this is Lee's pet pet project, which is token classification. I think we've moved to a world where we don't just talk about cryptocurrencies. We've moved beyond everything's like Bitcoin, ETH, AVAX, you know, layer one tokens um, to a world where lots of different things are getting tokenized and regulators and policymakers, to my ear, don't have good tools for how to think about that yet. And they're not making good distinctions to understand that Bitcoin is nothing like, you know, my favorite NFT collectible fart jars, but choose CryptoPunks or CryptoKitties or Bored Apes if, if fart, you like. Fart, fart jars is new to me. I mean, I might not <clears throat> be like a true NFT degen or whatever, but that's a new one. I got to go check that out. 
you, you have to look up the backstory. It's it's absolutely right. hysterical, right. especially <laughs> if you are uh, up, uh, about uh, five uh, years old. Um, <laughs> uh, but but then we're also seeing to tokenization of quote unquote real world assets. You know, we're seeing tokenization of stocks and bonds. We're seeing tokenization of things like gold and and other uh, physical commodities. We're seeing tokenization of loyalty points, event tickets, and all kinds of things that exist in, in that existed before blockchain, um, and hence why they're called real world assets. Um, I was joking with somebody the other day saying, "You realize that under uh, some people's interpretations, if StubHub." were to go all NFT with its tickets that it would need to register as a national securities exchange in the United States, which of course is completely absurd um, because most tickets are already just digital representations of the thing. And because you put them on blockchain doesn't change that, doesn't change their essential nature. And so, so that's been the area that I've been focused on, but in full disclosure, I have been uh, a lone voice yelling in the wilderness about this issue for a long, long time. Well, I was going to say, Tina is engaged in the, the, the most successful and prolific tokenization project that we have to date, and that is tokenizing U.S. dollars. Tokenizing in an U.S. dollars, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I love when, when people talk about stable coins uh, and, and, you know, stable against some other asset, right? And everybody says stable coins and they mean fiat linked or fiat backed stable coins but you know i can have a stable coin quote unquote that's an ounce of gold i can have a stable coin that's concert tickets i can have a stable coin right it depends on how broadly you're defining stable coins so a lot of the terminology is is uh is in need of more precise definition um but let's 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 jump back over to europe uh tina because I, I sort of find that really fascinating to see what's going to happen when all 27 countries are sort of under the same regime. Um, are there any cracks in the in that sameness? Or, or is there the ability for some countries to either gold plate Mika or perhaps interpret Mika in a more favorable way that makes it easier for projects to uh, uh, to conduct their activities? Well, interestingly, uh, the um, EBA and ESMA both have come out with their, I think, second and third respective tranches of level two technical standards for the industry to provide feedback on. And at the same time, there has been discussion both within the European Parliament and the Commission um, around ensuring that there is um, equal distribution or, or equal application of the tenets of the legislation and a acknowledgement that historically the national competent authorities within Europe, so that's the, the regulator of the country, um, have had a, a fairly significant um, scope to be able to interpret the legislation. And so um, something came out literally last week and there was an article in Politico, if somebody wants to Google it, around um, the regional regulators trying to ensure that every single country 
applies Mika in a consistent way um, to prevent that kind of regulator shopping across Europe. So I think the the you know the check is still on the post, as we say in the UK, um, around what those regimes look like um, because of the process by which new laws come into into force. That kind of rulemaking process that you would be familiar with in the US is essentially this technical standard um, process that we're going through now. So nothing within the level one. Um, the actual legislation can be changed, but there's a number of areas that um, we require a little bit more clarity on. One of them, for example, from a stablecoin perspective, is um, around transaction caps. So there's been a lot of discussion around non-European denominated stablecoins having transaction caps. And those are based on a number of transactions, um, a value and a volume over a period of time. But what exactly constitutes a payment is still a little bit up for debate, right? Um, And where those payments originate and where they end up um, is also still a little unclear. So if I send a uh, payment to to Yuli and I send it from Germany and it ends up in the U.S., um, that to me would not be a European payment, right, or an exchange of value. So those are the type of very technical, nuanced um, nits that um, the regulators and the industry are working through now. I think on the other um, side of that, we have a few jurisdictions that have had um, some maturity in their regulation of crypto assets existing, right? So we have Germany has rules, um, France has a pretty holistic regime, Malta, etc. right? And so some jurisdictions have taken the stance of regulating specific activities. Others like France have a little bit more of a holistic regime. And so there will be, um, for those jurisdictions, I think, less room to, or less, less distance to kind of bridge the existing regime into kind of Mika conformity. Um, but there will be other jurisdictions that that don't have that existing baseline and there'll be a lot of work to do for those countries. So Ari, I know that um, that uh, many countries, including the European Union, are thinking about illicit finance and anti-money laundering efforts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, FATF hasn't done a report this year, but they have plenty of other reports out there Um, And and I know that the illicit finance and anti-money laundering and, frankly, the terrorist financing, as as we saw with some of the reporting in the U.S. about Hamas uh, that has been subject to some criticism. Um, So how are you all thinking about what makes sense from a regulatory standpoint here? You know, I take your point about the transparency of blockchains and and really the ability to trace things, but uh, but but how are you all looking at at sort of the, the the world from from that perspective? Yeah, no, really really appreciate the question. Obviously, watching Mika implementation very very closely, I think it's an exciting moment in, in Europe to be sure. I think we were so focused on the passage that now it's like it's sort of like uh, you know I don't know if this is a good analogy, but I remember when I proposed. Uh, to my wife, I was all fired up about the proposal. 
And then like a couple hours later, she starts talking about the wedding. Uh, and I'm like, what? We're also getting married, right? Like, and it's, it, it, I feel like we're in that stage of Mika right now where it's like, oh yeah, we did this great thing. And it's like, then it's like, uh-oh, uh, we need all these member states to kind of, to get on board. And I, I think, uh, you know, obviously watching that very, very closely, what implementation looks like uh, across the block. You know, one thing, uh, you know, and I'll get, uh, I'll sort of address Hamas in a moment, but one thing about anti-money laundering for the most part, and you mentioned FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, which is sort of the UN of anti-money laundering, the global standard setter. And that is, it's actually a lot more clear than a lot of aspects of the sort of crypto regulatory, you know, policymaking space, right? Uh, In most countries, in most jurisdictions um, that have really sort of dug into this, um, per FATF, if you are a VASP or a CASP, a virtual asset service provider, a crypto asset service provider, depending on where you are located in the world, then you are essentially required to have anti-money laundering controls in place today. If you are a a cryptocurrency exchange, a custodian, a broker, a dealer, all these sort of these these entities, more centralized cryptocurrency, um, you are required to have controls in place. And that means compliance professionals use tools like TRM to monitor transactions and screen wallets. Uh, you're to, to respond to law enforcement subpoenas and other types of process. You have to have that in place today. So when we talk about crypto or regulators talk about crypto as the Wild West, this is an area that's not so wild, right? You essentially have the same requirements that financial institutions have. When we delve into the truly decentralized space, right, DeFi and sort of what, what the promise of the technology there, peer-to-peer value transfer, I think we're in a little bit of a different world. Uh, when it comes to anti-money laundering and the sort of what is possible, uh, we're just starting to see regulators, I think, try to have that conversation. There was a consultation in France. Uh, the U.S. Treasury's put out a risk assessment on DeFi, as well as a notice of proposed rulemaking on mixers that get into some of that. Um, but the reality is we're we're still at the very early stages of that uh, of that conversation. Look, on, on terrifying- and, and uh, yeah, Ari, yeah. sorry, I, I want to interrupt you for a second because I want to unpack uh, something that you said, and and I'd also like to get Tina's reaction to this. And one of the things you said about where there is clarity is, hey, you're just regulated like a financial institution, um, and yet uh, some of <laughs> some of us are not financial institutions. And, you know, figuring out what it means to be regulated like a financial institution when you are not a financial institution uh, does pose uh, significant problems. And so I'd I'd wonder if you could just comment on that. And and Tina, you should also comment on that. I'll take a crack at that and and feel free to jump in. I think this is one of the largest challenges we have in the space, right? It is the definitions. And I think typically over the last you know, less than a decade, six, eight years, something like that, um, policymakers globally have looked at crypto and they thought to themselves of the sort of large centralized exchanges. And to regulators, they look and feel a lot like financial institutions, essentially intermediaries, the way we've always done anti-money laundering, right? You've relied on siloed financial institutions, right? If you're Bank of America, you've got to send your siloed SAR report, your suspicious activity report to FinCEN. And such is true with Citi and Wells Fargo and all these other entities. Um, and that 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 sort of works fine because it, there's an obvious hook there. You have an intermediary, you have uh, executives, you have lawyers, you have the sort of that that typical thing. I think it gets a lot more complicated when you talk about 
other types of crypto businesses or services that are less centralized, that don't feel like financial institutions? And I think that to me actually is the most interesting question and one we're sort of at still at the very, very early stages of. How do you treat different types of entities in the space? And I think we're seeing that play out right now in the United States, but really globally. And I think it goes to, hey, if you're centralized, if you're an intermediary, we know how to do that. If you're not, we need something very different. And it's a total paradigm shift. And I think both of you who beat your head against the wall on a regular basis know how hard it is to shift a paradigm. Uh, and, and I think that's the real challenge right now. And the reason I keep coming back to the native qualities of blockchains, right, uh, is that they allow us to regulate potentially in a very different way without intermediaries, where regulators have a bird's eye view in real time of their regulated financial system and don't have to rely on intermediaries. But that would be a sea change in the way we think about anti-money laundering regulation in particular. Yeah, um, I think, Lee, if I go back to you, your statements around tokenizing real-world assets. and, and Yes, thank yeah. you. <laughs> um, you know, where we hopefully, you know, sooner than later, I think it would solve a lot of our AML, you know, CTF, KYC challenges. Um, if we were able to truly tokenize in a constantly upgradable way, identity that was portable and permissionable, meaning that I can use it for a variety of different um, verification um, points where I might need to, to prove that I'm me and only provide you with the information that is relevant to the service I'm undertaking from you, right? So you don't need my healthcare records if I'm trying to get a cell phone contract, for example, right? Um, I think that's one of the key things that that really kind of solves a lot of these challenges that we're having. The second thing I would say is that when we're looking at tokenizing potentially data or different types of value that may or may not um, be financial in their nature. And so, you know, we go back to maybe NFTs and collectibles. You know, are you buying something because you want to essentially hang a piece of art on your wall because you love it? You know, and that, that could happen in a digital way. Or because you have an expectation that that piece of art will increase in value. Well, that's intent, right? And intent is very difficult to, to kind of quantify and prove legally, right? And so I think that we do have issues around um, taxonomy, which remain. I mean, we've, I know, between the three of us, been involved in probably numerous um, taxonomy projects where we have tried to articulate um, what what these things and what these activities are and how they work and what they do in a way that a policymaker can understand them. But at the moment, I think some of these things just kind of lack context in a real world environment. And so when you apply the real world context to something that is entirely not new, there's asymmetry, right? There's a gap there. And so to Ari's point, you just kind of cut and paste. This is how we do things. I mean, I would argue that the way that we prevent money laundering today um, is woeful and an awful lot of it gets through and the ability to be able to see things on chain does provide a level of transparency and insight that we have never had before. Um, however, that education piece around bringing policymakers up to speed, I think is, is the critical kind of gap. I think the second thing or the third thing that I would say is that um, 
when we're trying to bring policymakers up to speed, one of the most important things that I think that the industry can do is talk about either client stories or case studies or use cases in a really tangible way, right? So one of the key questions that I get all the time is, what is this good for anyway? Isn't it just used for, you know, uh, financial um, misconduct? Isn't it just used for speculation? Um, And we're really entering this utility period. And a lot of these tokenized assets are being used for a myriad of things. For example, there's a big luxury brand that is looking at how they might be able to, we were talking earlier about loyalty, um, really engage with the customer through the life cycle of their portfolio of companies. So when you're 20 and you have disposable income and spend of, of 100 bucks, and then when you're 30, maybe you have a disposable income of 500 bucks, and when you're 50, you have a disposable income of 1,000 bucks. How do they nurture that customer relationship? through the life cycle of the relationship, but over the course of time, as they graduate through the different um, types of offerings that they have within their portfolio of companies. So I think that there's a lot of different ways that that businesses are looking to kind of evolve how they engage with people, how they provide value, whether it be financial or, or otherwise. Um, and I think that we as an industry aren't great at articulating what those value propositions are and those use cases are. And I think that then kind of puts up a little bit of a, a barrier with those policymakers to say, nope, you're just trying to skirt the existing system and, and come into compliance or you're gonna we're going to take enforcement action against you. This is a huge point, right? I, I think people ask me all the time, what is the most pressing issue or the biggest challenge in crypto? And they expect me to say, like, is it a security or is it a commodity? It is not that. It is these use cases, right? Regulators will care about this technology if we can come up with or argue or articulate compelling use cases. And, and, and I could not agree with Tina more about that point. I think it's absolutely critical. And it's interesting. I sort of started this with, to me, when I talk about use cases, I talk about anti-money laundering, right? It's a feature of this technology, not a bug. And I'll, and I, and I'll give you an example, right? Uh, you asked about Hamas. Um, you know, over the years, Hamas has fundraised in cryptocurrency. Uh, it is a very, very small part of the overall sort of terror financing puzzle that involves hundreds of millions from state sponsors like Iran, um, you know, networks of Hawalas, uh, you know, sending funds, uh, a diaspora of individual donors all over the world, right? Investment portfolios, you know, things that are impossible to track. I was a prosecutor with the Department of Justice for about 11 years and did money laundering cases involving high value art and real estate and you know, investment portfolios, it is impossible to track those things, right? But what crypto has allowed for is investigators to track and trace donations to Hamas and other terrorist organizations. And about two years ago, DOJ seized about 150 addresses associated with just Hamas, others associated with Al-Qaeda and ISIS. They took down their fundraising infrastructure, all because they were able to track and trace funds on an open blockchain. Over the last few years, Israel has seized hundreds of wallet addresses associated with different terrorist types of organizations. Again, like an only in crypto kind of story, right? We can't do this in the traditional world. So um, I I think that there are so many great examples of wins. um, And instead of sort of focusing on the very tiny amount of funds that have gone through, um, you know, really sort of, again, this use case of anti-money laundering is something to really sort of focus on or at least uh, think about when we're crafting uh, regulation. 
But Lee, to your point, I think around, you know, who is an intermediary, right? So again, coming back to trying to put activities or market actors into known boxes, right? Are you a money service business, for example? Um, When we look at that same activity through the lens of peer-to-peer exchange or DeFi exchange, the ability to be able to tokenize and transmit value on a near instant global scale just does not exist in traditional financial services, right? Because of those in any in in anything, right? in any, yeah. <clears throat> like even oh. Amazon, when when you're in the U.S., you're using Amazon U.S. When you're in the U.K., you're using Amazon U.K. And when I want to send uh, flaming hot Cheetos to my daughter in London, they are not available on Amazon UK, even though I can get as many boxes of them as I would like here in the United States through Amazon. So uh, there, there are differences, uh, but with blockchain and tokenized assets, it's anytime, anywhere. Lee, we need to unpack that. So you're sending boxes of Flaming Hot Cheetos to the UK. I love this. Did you see the movie on Disney Plus? Uh, it's amazing. Flaming Hot. It's about this this guy who was a janitor for a Frito Lay plant and wanted wanted his community to uh, to to for 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 sort of snacks to taste more like the traditions in his culture. Uh, and he's become the the father of Latino marketing uh, globally. Now. Um, and actually is an executive for Frito-Lay or was for a number of years before he, I don't know, did, did something else, but just an amazing, like, you know, lo- love the like entrepreneurship story. Like it has everything in there, you know? Yeah, that's a, that, it's a great story. Um, and there was actually an episode of some podcast that I listened to that, that told his story and, uh, really fascinating stuff, right? Uh, you start out with an idea of, Hey, I want something that tastes like something I'm familiar with from home. And uh, you finally convince the company that you're working at to do it. So it's, uh, it's yeah. great. I think there's some cool parallels to like what we do, right? You know, you're trying to, you know, educate people about something new and different and you have that sort of entrepreneurial spirit to build it. Um, yeah, I think it's just it's just an awesome story when I'm thinking about sort of entrepreneurship and building. Yeah, totally agree. Um, you know, Tina, back to the point that, that you made. I, the other thing I would add here is... Um, because everything on chain is now available everywhere and it is everything or it's slowly becoming everything uh, with with tokenization of quote unquote real world assets, as we were saying before, it, 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 it's really very difficult for people to conceptualize what that means. And it's particularly difficult uh, for policymakers and regulators because they're used to saying like, okay, stocks trade over there and healthcare is done over here and um, Flaming Hot Cheetos are done over there. And now we're in a world where because of the internet and because of tokenization, all of those things are just all together on chain. And that means you can move them everywhere. That means they can interact with each other in ways that people have not traditionally traditionally thought of. And it poses huge challenges, uh, partly in the context of DeFi. Like, how do we deal with DeFi for real for, for stocks? 
Um, nobody's nobody's thought about that, but when you tokenize stocks, that's what it's going to be. DeFi will trade stocks. How do you deal with DeFi for um, collectibles, right? You create these trading markets for collectibles where the collectible trades against the stock and you have all of this like stuff that people are just not used to thinking about. And uh, there are no good uh, legal precedents for for how to think about it. Um, and I think, you know, you you both have made the point that this autonomously functioning code on the Internet creates challenges for regulators and policymakers. And I would take that. I totally agree with that. And I would take it one step further by saying also when you've amalgamated all of these these items that have not traditionally traded together and I use traded in the broadest sense possible, um, you're you're in an even more confusing world for policymakers and regulators, but they're going to have to figure it out sooner or later because that's where the world is headed. Well, and I think to your point uh, about, you know, innovation and, and entrepreneurship, people will create cool stuff, right? Regardless of what neat little box it fits into. And I think, you know, 13 years into the crypto journey, we've seen lots of interesting things attempted. Um, some certainly more successfully than others. We've, we've had some, you know, pretty interesting uh, tests and fails along the way. But I think that there are, you know, kind of key tenants that that we can agree to. I think one of the most compelling things that happened um, when the Financial Action Task Force first took a look at how they were going to bring crypto assets into their recommendations, we're going back to 2018, 2019, one of the things that I felt was most profound about that was that it was a potentially existential threat or would have existential impact to almost every single market actor in the space, certainly at that time, right? If we look at kind of the evolution of what we were doing then to kind of what we're able to, to do today with the technology. And so it brought everyone together. I remember I was at a very well-known industry event and somebody introduced me to the then editor of one of the you know, top crypto uh, media companies and said, you should really talk to Tina. She's just been at a FATF you know, conference. And they didn't know what FATF was. And so I explained it to them. And then they said, but why would my readers care about this? And so I spent the majority of the time explaining to this, this journalist why this mattered and why it would absolutely matter to everyone imminently. And so it took a little bit of time for the, the community to rally. But once they kind of got their head around the impact that this could have, if they didn't show up and contribute to the conversation and have a seat at the table, that, you know, it could potentially be catastrophic. And equally for the regulator, I think that they, or the, the standard body, they understood too that there was a lot that they didn't know and has now taken this same stance um, and been very considered and careful to, you know, over-recommend what people should be doing or what regulators should be doing or legislators should be doing around DeFi because there's still a lot we don't know. But what we do understand is that we understand how to regulate intermediated markets, right, where there are multiple players. 
and there is some form of, you know, custodial responsibility if you're holding onto somebody's assets or you're moving somebody's assets in the same way that like the mover that comes to, to move you from, you know, Philadelphia to Dayton, Ohio is responsible for your stuff, right? And we expect that they're going to take care and that your stuff is going to get there. And if something breaks or goes missing, that they're going to be responsible for it, right? So that kind of fiduciary responsibility exists across many different types of the transfer of value, right? But it's critical that there's, there's people, there's people involved. And so I think we're entering this phase of, you know, what exactly is decentralization? How long does it take to evolve? Should everything be decentralized? You know, Circle is... Very, very um, accounted about being a you know centralized entity. Um, we are a centralized business, and that means that we take on a lot of responsibility um, and take our fiduciary responsibility very seriously. But as we move into the future, you know, just by you know the very nature, I hate to bring up ChatGPT, but let's leave all of that off the cards now. The ability to be able to do things for yourself. I think is not just about being your own bank anymore. There's a number of things that we will be able to do for ourselves that previously we needed, you know, a significant level of support to do. Um, and so I do think that, you know, our, our culture will change um, so that some of this activity that is more decentralized and doesn't require all these intermediaries will be more normalized. I think this has been a great conversation. Uh, so I, I do think, notwithstanding I said we were not going to perambulate, I, I do think we perambulated at least in, in the topics that we covered. Um, I didn't sense any prevarication, so that's good. Uh, so now it's time for the prognostication. Um, and, and I'll give each of you the opportunity to make a couple of prognostic one or more prognostications on any topic uh, you would like. Uh, so um, let's see. We started with Tina at the very beginning. So Ari, why don't you why don't you take this one first? Terrific. Ha happy to. And I, I think I'll continue kind of where Tina left off. And that is, I think something we've been seeing for the last year, year and a half is the development of some consistency really globally and across jurisdictions. And, you know, none of us should be naive enough to ever think that, um, we will ever see sort of, you know, standards or, you know, global legislation or, or policymaking in this space. But I think we'll see consistency. And we're already starting to see that globally. If you look at places like Tina mentioned, Dubai, um, if you look at the UK and the EU and Japan and Singapore, and you really start to look across the globe, all different regimes, but can starting to see some consistent standards across them that I think will allow uh, folks who are engaging in the space crypto businesses and others to start to feel a little bit more comfortable about engaging. And that really goes to the maturity of the space. I love Tina's uh, uh, mention of like being asked at a conference, like, hey, what is FATF and why does it matter? Um, I think the industry now knows why it matters. They know knows why regulation matters, but also regulators are starting to understand why the industry matters, right? You want to be a crypto hub in the UK, in the EU, in Singapore, we're hearing that type of language. So I think that'll be what we'll, I think we'll certainly see that continuing into 2024 as we sort of put the events of the last few years, right? The early days of crypto maybe behind us, um, you know, with the FTX trial and other events that are going, that, that are going on, I think we'll put that world behind us and move maybe more towards this sort of, 
you know, ecosystem where we have regulators and industry sort of working more closely together to develop consistent standards across the globe. All right, Tina. Yeah, so my prognostication um, would be, um, I, I like to always kind of end with throwing it out to to the community. I spend my time um, trying to be the advocate and the interpreter for the industry with policymakers. Um, and I think that one thing is clear to me that while um, policymakers are getting their arms around the assets and the activities, there is still quite a lot of scrutiny and uncertainty and, and, a, and a genuine level of discomfort around open source technology. Um, specifically, I think we kind of, if we can look back, you know, I'm dating myself, but, you know, I was in banking before everybody switched to cloud. And at the time it was like, we're not going to turn off our data centers. There's no way this data is leaving this building. Right. And obviously that, that isn't the way that, um, data is housed today. So I think there's hope, but I think that if we look at the fundamentals around what will enable this technology to continue to thrive and serve more use cases is is really the education showing up and speaking to your local policymakers and having really good examples of why open source technology is the way forward. Um, walled gardens have taken us to to where we are today and what the possibilities are around, you know, safe, secure, resilient open source protocols and platforms. Um, and then I think the other area where I think that the community, much like when we rallied together um, to approach, you know, having balanced recommendations from FATF, we've got a real challenge around privacy. There is, um, I think, a, a brewing attack on on privacy as as a concept that somehow privacy and secrecy are related. Um, situations like the one that is happening um, now with with Hamas and and other terrorist organizations, I think, exacerbate um, that that scrutiny. And so, for me, I just think you know we can we can argue about you know I I can I can get almost anybody regulated. You want to come to the UK? You can hire me. I'll do your application. I know what they want to hear, right? Um, and 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 that you know is 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 my day job. But fundamentally, I think if we want this industry to, to progress, to really um, realize the potential of what is possible. We, we all as a community need to be um, defenders with um, facts, quantitative, qualitative facts around, you know, what is this open source technology good for and how can privacy be preserved in a way that, you know, doesn't harm consumers or, you know, the state. Well, I am going to go way out on a limb with my prognostication. <clears throat> I am going to say that some federal candidate for federal office in the United States in 2024 is going to issue an NFT in conjunction with their campaign. I have no idea who it is. I don't think it will be Joe Biden, but uh, I'm, I'm willing to, to stretch out here and, and think that there is some member of Congress who's going to issue an NFT in connection with their, uh, with their campaign for uh, election. So, um, and I, for one- Will you buy it for posterity purposes? Uh, I, I, they're not gonna, it's not gonna be for sale. 
it's going to be uh, remember like the old pins that you used to get for uh for campaigns it's going to be like a pin or a bumper sticker or something like that the campaign will give them away for free it'll be part of the swag uh for for the Your digital yard sign in the metaverse exactly exactly um anyway we'll see if that comes true it has been an absolute pleasure talking with the two of you as i suspected it would be um, and uh, we will definitely reconvene again sometime in the new year and see, A, whether any of our prognostications came true, but more specifically, see how the world is progressing when it comes to policy and regulation of blockchain and crypto. So, uh, Tina, Ari, thank you both very much. Absolutely fabulous. We hope you enjoyed our Hootenanny. Thank you for listening. For more hopeful and hype-free resources, visit OwlExplains.com. There, you will find articles, quizzes, practical explainers, suggested reading materials, and lots more. Also, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn to continue wising up on blockchain and Web3. That's all for now on Owl Explains. Until next time.